Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cooper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what will remain scarce in the future? Uh, so let's start with a thought experiment. It's the future, and we have uh, artificial intelligence that can equal human beings on a wide variety of tasks. Let's, let's even say most tasks. We maybe have 3D printing to the point that it's essentially fully realized nanotechnology. Maybe people have these household printers where they can, you know, download a scan from the internet and then print out whatever it is they want. Sure, you print your own cell phone or your own uh, clothing at home. Sure. On your Drexel machine or whatever it is. Yeah. And let's say maybe we have an abundance of energy. You know, we've managed to capture solar energy right, and efficient... photovoltaic. Yeah. And we have, you know... Um, super capacitors made out of nanotech or something that have, uh, you know, revolutionized battery technology. So we're, we're talking about like a, a world of abundance, kind of like the one that Peter Diamandis talks about in his recent book, uh, which is called Abundance. Right. This is something that futurists uh, have posited as being a sort of end point for a, a techno-utopian society. We might get to a, a place like this. Where technology delivers almost all the things that people want, and it does it far cheaper than we've ever had it right. before. At almost no cost, or no <clears throat> marginal cost anyway, after the initial cost of design, all manner of, of things can be delivered straight to you. And obviously, we're not going to get to this type of scenario, you know, tomorrow, and, and nobody knows when it will happen, but it seems like we're on track. It seems like, you know, every, you know, year we make a little bit of progress towards this ideal. Things get a little bit cheaper. The world gets a little more abundant. You know, obviously, there are some downsides to progress that we experience, like pollution and global warming, but those things accepted, you know, we, we tend to make progress in terms of producing uh, more things at a lower cost. Correct. And so is this worth thinking about? I think it is because if we're on track to reach this point, you know, we're not going to get there overnight. There's going to be these sort of gradual steps in between. Right. I think that's the key point here, which is this world of abundance sounds really wonderful and we'd all like to live there, but we don't know how long it will take to get there. We don't know how long uh, it'll be between now and then. And that period of time between now and then, as we chip away at what has been scarce, might lead to some some necessary changes in, in how we do things. The, the important thing here being that there are going to be effects, economic effects, of getting closer to a world of abundance um, that are going to happen long before we have to deal with economic effects of the abundance itself. Exactly. As you approach this point, we're going to feel the effects of better artificial intelligence, of the ability to print right. more and more things, right. if better not all Better home-scale manufacturing. Uh, right. Exactly. Right. So... It's worth kind of, you know, doing this thought experiment, thinking about this endpoint and imagining, well, will there still be an economy? And I think there probably will be, although it would probably be very different. And, you know, as you may know, uh, economics is largely based on this concept of scarcity. So the question to ask is, what would still be scarce in this world? Um, right. An assumption we're making here, which might not be totally obvious, is that things derive their economic value from their scarcity. Right. This is just another way of restating the obvious uh, law of supply and demand. Right. That, um, it's not just enough that people want things. They have to also be scarce. Otherwise, they're not going to have a price. And uh, so as we think about this world of abundance that's way off in the future, we can imagine some things that even with this massive technological abundance, as we understand it, would remain scarce and would therefore still have a price of some kind perhaps associated with them. Right, because this is how you make money today. I mean, whether or not you think about it this way, uh, making money in the market system involves 
finding some sort of scarce commodity and then monetizing it. And that scarce commodity could be, you know, literally a physical object, like say you're selling uh, chairs that you make in your garage, or it could be- Or you climb up to the top of a tree and you pick some apples, right? Sure. And then you sell them to somebody else. Sure. Or it could be a a scarce service, like you give really great back massages and, you know, a robot can't do that yet. Right. Or you're really good at figuring out how people should fill out their tax returns. Or you're an assistant- in some capacity to a larger business that is itself involved right. in, a, in a selling some sort of scarce commodity. Right. So this is how money gets made. And so if you want to make money in this future that we're positing, you'd have to find something that was still scarce. Right. And either monetize it yourself or work for somebody who was monetizing it. Those are basically your only options for making money. And one of the things that I think helps in thinking about this world of abundance is looking at some of the things that are already abundant. Um, we have this phenomenon of abundance in our digital media right now, right. which is potentially a useful test case for what this is going to look like. Again, if you look at the music industry today, uh, as opposed to the past, I mean, music has sort of already hit this hyper-abundant point. Yeah, it's a great test case because it it's a low-bandwidth digital product that uh, really before even other digital products has had to go through uh, the process of becoming non-scarce uh, it, before our very eyes. It, it it happened in our lifetimes while we were while we were watching it happen. Exactly, and so the cost to get a music file onto your computer now is is almost zero. Yeah, that marginal cost of copying the file is essentially zero. the The cost of producing the music file is a little bit greater than zero, but it's not a lot more these days. It's, it's Right, um, and you have to pay for internet access to actually get it, and you have to have a computer that can play it back. So it's not it's not completely free, but... Uh, sure, there are some infrastructure costs, some startup costs, but the, the cost of each individual file on the margin is, is down to, to pretty much nothing. And the same is true for movies and books and a variety of other media. So those are, again, some of the analogies we're going to be drawing as we talk about what happens if this starts affecting everything, including, say, clothing and... and uh, Right. All, all the things that we traditionally products. think of as being more um, physical, uh, non-digital goods. So we're going to list 14 different things that... In, in four major categories. In four major categories that would still be scarce in this future world we're imagining. And the first category is scarcities of time. And time is something that, you know, unless we uh, find some way to control it and invent actual time travel... Uh, we're pretty much subject to the rules of time. Yeah, as far as we can tell, there's no way out of of time. And as Tom Stoppard says, uh, for all the compasses in all the world, there's only one direction, uh, <laughs> and time is its only measure. And um, and I think there are many scarcities that arise from the fundamental nature of time. So let's just get right into it. The first one, and I think kind of the most important, is attention. And, and yes, and this is all around us. I mean, this is what is driving a lot of the services that we use daily. Sure, I mean. Tons of things uh, monetize attention directly. Uh, television is the most obvious, but there's lots more of them. And attention is just always going to be irreducibly scarce uh, because there's always going to be a finite number of human minds, and each human mind is going to have a finite amount of attention it can pay at any given moment. It might be to one or two or maybe three things, and then that's it. Yeah, um, if you're looking at in one direction, you can't necessarily be looking in another direction at the right. same time. If you're reading a text, you can't necessarily be reading something else. So that attention is limited. You have a limited attention to give. And when you pay attention, say, to a television channel, uh, they turn around and sell your attention to an advertiser that, and therefore monetize it. Um, that happens also on websites. It happens in any number of, of media. And in a future that's full of 
really attractive and free options for spending your time being entertained in any number of games, movies, music, text, etc. that's available, the value of each individual's attention might actually increase relative to today. Because there'd be more and more competition uh, for right. people's... For uh, that eyeball. For that eyeball, exactly. Or, you know, eyeballs may be a, a wrong... Um, uh, organ to uh, <laughs> to to use there, but I think we we use eyeballs to mean attention. Um, although you can pay attention obviously through your ears in other ways too. So then that's number one. Now number two would be convenience, and uh, again this is tied to time because convenience essentially would be something that saves you time, and it doesn't have to necessarily be a lot of time. It could just be a little bit, and that uh, saving you a little bit of time might be enough to make you want to pay for something. Sure. Um, so an example that we can take from today, talking about abundant media, would be, say, uh, Netflix. And so, like, there are a lot of uh, movies on Netflix and TV shows that, with a little bit of know-how, fairly easy to pirate online. And yet, it for a lot of people, I think, maybe not necessarily even for moral reasons, they might just choose to get a Netflix subscription because the convenience is so much easier. They don't right. have to go to BitTorrent and jump through a bunch of hoops. Right. There's fewer steps. You search for the thing. If it's there, you immediately start watching it. So the third thing that's that's a scarcity uh, relative related to time is the first release of something. Uh, so whether it's a product or a, uh, a piece of media, if you produce a digital good of some kind, even if it's completely susceptible to unlimited, unlicensed copying, you still have some control over that initial release of the good uh, because there's that moment before you've released it to anyone. And in some cases, and not in all, there'll be consumers who are so interested in having that good first that they'll pay a premium to have it hours or maybe even minutes or seconds before other people. And, you know, that's an interesting one because you could see that possibly the value of that might decrease with time as that lead time gets shorter and shorter. But I think there'll always be some people for whom the prestige of being first is really uh, valuable. Right. And a lot of this stuff is culturally determined. So it, it requires sort of creating a market for people that are excited about being the first. But I think we already kind of have those people today. So. Sure, that's something that exists in our culture now. I see no reason why it should disappear entirely. So, and, and again, just to kind of put this into the future scenario that we're talking about, um, again, if you have your 3D printer at home that can make anything, right, then the, what, the one thing you could sell is you're going to get the design for the new T-shirt first, and you're going to have that T-shirt, you know, maybe a split second before someone else. Right. But that still might be something that you could monetize. Right. The fourth thing would be novel real-time experiences. You know, the market for real experiences, I think, is already something we see just looking down a street of a major city in an urban environment. Because I think, you know, if you look at restaurants now, if you look at uh, things like bookstores now, things that survive, you know, the restaurant isn't just offering food and a bookstore that hasn't gone out of business, if it still is around, is not just offering books they're offering some kind of intangible experience, like at the bookstore, a place to sit and drink coffee and sort of like get it, suggestions from the people behind the counter or the restaurant's offering some ambiance and, you know, the, the feeling right. of being waited on. Right. Well, in a social experience, other people go to the bookstore and the restaurant and you associate yourself with those people and their group because you've chosen the same location to hang out at and consume things in. And I think increasingly that actually that social element is the most important element of these 
uh, real-time shopping experiences that are popping up, particularly in urban, uh, wealthy urban neighborhoods. You know, in our neighborhood here, we do have a local bookstore, and it's not something that you necessarily see throughout the country anymore. But I think the way that bookstore stays in business is they host events and they have cool people who work there, and it's kind of like a cool place to hang out. It makes you feel cool to go there. This idea of novel real-time experiences actually is much bigger than that, though, uh, because it also encompasses things like amusement parks and um, haunted sure. houses and all kinds of experiences that are, uh, their whole value is in the time spent doing them and in the uh, novelty of that time. It's, a, it's, a, it's an experience that won't be recreated exactly that way ever again. Uh, it's totally unique. And it's not just um, a passive experience. You are a participant in it. And we're using novel and real time to contrast with a pre-recorded experience, because in the, again, in this imaginary future that we're right. that we're thinking of, there's going to be really great virtual reality. Right. I'm we're sure. assuming this is a world where there's nanobots in the brain and stuff, and you can have you know hijack your senses and have a pre-recorded vir- virtual experience that uh, you could have over and over again. And I'm not suggesting that people won't do that or choose that, but that there'll still be a desire for these novel, real-time, non-recreatable experiences. And that are different because there are human actors in them that change them. I mean, that's right. a big part there of it, right? There are unpredictable right? elements, human or otherwise, in them that change them every time. Right? Yeah. A fifth thing on the list is still in the category of scarcities related to time would be originals, right? So, like, what separates the value of an original work of art, like the actual Mona Lisa from, say, like a perfect replica, you know? Or like a guitar that Jimi Hendrix played versus just the exact same uh, model. And the difference is the the history associated with that object, right? Right. And so marketing like the history of a good, this is one antidote to the fact that in this future, uh, there's going to be so many copies and they're going to be so easy to create copies of things is that only certain objects will have had certain history that goes along with them. Right. Well, and the only thing that I worry about with this one is that we make it to a point with the technology where it's impossible to distinguish the fakes from the originals. Sure. And so the originals still have value in people's mind, but it may become difficult to actually extract that value by proving that what you have is truly the original. Although it could go the opposite way. The technology could make tracking the history and proving that even easier. Uh, just because of the the records of everything would right. be so much better. Right, if you better. could search the records and actually literally trace the movements of the object throughout its history. And again, this is highly culturally determined. I mean, this is, means creating a market essentially for collectors, for people right. who care about right. the it's, history of an object. Right, yeah. it's worth pointing out that original the value in an original is badge value. It's, it's value that's created by marketing. And that's true now. If I make a non-perfect replica of the Mona Lisa with current technology, you know, by taking a very high quality photograph and then printing it out on a canvas printer, um, it's still going to look great and be a, a really wonderful picture to look at, but an art collector won't want to buy it from me um, because they value that original because there's a whole cult, essentially, a whole badge value marketing cult of, of many hundreds of years that's built up that value in our culture. You know, I'm not saying that value is not legitimate. I think it is legitimate, but it, it does fall under that uh, rubric of, of being something that's created culturally rather than something that's essential. We could just decide as a culture basically that we no longer care about originals and that that value would go. And away. there are probably plenty of those people already. Right, right. But I don't think that that's going to be um, given. I, yeah, I don't see that. I don't see a collector culture completely going away. No. Okay, so sixth on the list, and this is the last scarcity having to do with time, is potential. And so this is about monetizing the future, monetizing right. a potential product that doesn't actually exist yet. And and the best example of this 
that we can point to today in current in the current world. Yeah, yeah is Kickstarter. Right. Because that's what Kickstarter or that's one way to look at what Kickstarter is, which right. is that it's sort of ransoming your talent or your idea saying I have this concept or I have this ability. And if you want to see it come to fruition, you got to pay up. Right. So it's actually time shifting the sale of the product. I mean, normally you would make the product first, then you would sell it. Right. Right. And then you would collect the money at that point. And this is saying, hey, this product's not even going to exist in the world unless first you pay me. And then it comes out of my mind. And that seems to make the most sense to me when you're talking about digital products that are infinitely copyable. You're going to be able to charge for them at that moment when they don't exist, because at that moment they are not piratable. You can't pirate a song that hasn't been recorded. Uh, You can't knock off a product that hasn't been fully designed. So that's a, a good place to ask for money from people, in my opinion, because it's a place where the scarcity is is at its peak. And once you uh, collect the money and make the product, let's say it's a piece of music that you're making just for simplicity's sake, then you can release it into the world and not worry about the fact that it's going to be copied infinitely because you've already made your money. It changes where uh, the sale happens, but it also changes where the sale happens too, in my opinion, the most economically sensible point in the process if what you're creating uh, is an abundant digital good. Yeah, I think this is one of the most promising areas on the list, actually, you know, uh, second only maybe to attention of places that might actually be real areas of value in this future that we're imagining. Because Kickstarter is just one example, but you can imagine paying a large group of people that make pitches to you, assuming that maybe only one out of 100 of those people is going to actually produce a good idea, but maybe it's economically worthwhile to invest in them because, you know, that one out of the 100 will pay for all of them, say. And right. I, I think, you know, you see an implementation of this at Google. Sure, or at just VC um, companies in general. I right. That's sort of the strategy of, of venture capital is you spread out your bets among, you know, many longish shots, all of which have the potential to pay off big. Right. And so the, the skill that's important is basically making a good sales pitch. You know, if you can convince somebody that you've got a great idea locked up in your head that could become reality in the future, then that will be worth something. Okay. So we should move on now to a different category, which is the scarcity of space. This is There's only one thing in this category, and it's land. Uh, right. Land on which to live and do things, uh, whether it's on planet Earth or on some newly habitable additional planet, will continue to be scarce essentially forever, as, as, for as far as we're able to see. Now, I think there's distinctions to be made there because uh, we are making progress in bringing down the cost of constructing housing. And so we may see cheaper housing prices in the future, but the underlying squares of land are not going to get lower in value. They're only going to be more and more valuable as the technology allows more and more things to happen on on the same amount of land. Yeah, we would have to have the ability to say, like, create a new habitable planet, like, you know, almost out of thin air to like... Yeah, or raise land out of the ocean or something. And, and again, yeah. that's kind of like time travel. It's one of these things that's so far-fetched that I, you know, kind of just leave that off the table in right. this Right, when we're talking about this, you know, abundant future, we're talking about relatively plausible extensions of current trends. I mean, yes, it's still a leap to say we're going to have nanoscale manufacturing in everybody's home, but that strikes me as a whole lot more plausible in the near future than, say, time travel or planet creation. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to this the... Category three now. Category three is scarcities of matter. Right. And uh, there's two things on this list. Uh, the first is computation, you know? And the trend we see today is that a lot more and more goods and services are being subsumed by computers. We've talked about this in other episodes, but so many of the products uh, that we see around us are, 
you know, becoming swallowed up by software and by computers. Right. I mean, and services too are just you know getting automated by computer software. And we can right. we can assume that that will continue, but you're still going to have to buy the computer itself or access to the computation, right? In order to produce those right. same. And exactly services. the model, whether you're buying a computer or you're buying a a thin client of some kind is, is sort of irrelevant. You're going to be buying access of some kind to computation and the computation will probably be cheap because computation follows the Moore's law curve and it, it's getting cheaper all the time, but it probably won't be free. And, and there's a good chance you're going to be able to use uh, more of it than you have at any given moment because it is such a general purpose thing and it is so very useful. Yeah. And then that brings us to the other scarcity of matter. And this is an obvious one. Uh, so this is the ninth uh, thing on our list of 14 things, it's raw materials. Um, raw materials, even if you've got a nano-assembling, you know, hyperprinter at home and you can print out things from carbon cartridges, somebody still has to make those carbon cartridges and distribute them to you. And that raw material preparation and, and distribution is still going to have value because uh, the, that those things will still be You're scarce. still going to need atoms to feed into your you atomic printer. Exactly. Yeah. And other people can use those atoms for other things, so they'll still have value. So which brings us to our last category and this is like sort of the softest but i think also maybe most interesting category yeah so the, we, we we've done uh time space and matter and the last category is scarcities of human interaction things that kind of rely on humanness for their value again remember we're imagining a world where we have pretty good artificial intelligence that is doing most of the tasks that humans do as well as humans do them and so this is the situation where we talk about well, what would we still want humans for? Right. What would we prefer a human for, even if a computer maybe could do it? Right. And yeah. so the first thing on the list and number 10 on the overall list is empathy. So we're going to have these robots that have, you know, pretty convincing human likenesses and they may seem conscious, but you can't prove consciousness. I mean, I can't even really prove that uh, another human is conscious, although, uh, you know, it, it I just accept that. And we might just accept that in our robots too, but we might also just always feel like it's sort of an other, it's sort of an alien. Like we can't really trust that they really have thoughts and feelings the way that we do. And that's going to create a divide that might impact certain areas, right? Also, these robots aren't necessarily going to have had human experiences, right? I mean, if we raise them from birth, Right, uh, right. Yeah, this is an interesting idea. If you right. if you raise a robot in a human family as if it were a human child, you might be able to condition a robot that has a very human-like experience of the world and is therefore very empathetic to humans. But a robot that just rolled off of the factory floor um, doesn't really have that library of personal experience. It might come preloaded with some sort of false memories. But again, that credibility may, may matter to people. Right. Um, and so in, in certain areas, like the one that comes to mind first is a therapist. Uh, you may prefer a human therapist over a robot therapist. That's a situation where empathy is an important quality. Right. And it's not to say that the human therapist wouldn't be consulting with AIs about what the best course of action to suggest to you is, just to, that you might ultimately want to hear it from a human who has a human face and can look at you with his eyebrows up and give you the appearance of knowing where you're coming from. And even if the, like, you know, you could make a robot that had a human looking face and et cetera, et cetera. But you, you just, you may want to know deep down that you're talking to another human that right. may matter in those types of situations. Right. And uh, another place where sort of empathy and shared experience might matter is just with art. I mean, we, robots are going to make pretty good art, but will we be interested in it? I right. mean, I think robots make some pretty good art now, even, right. I mean, there's some, it's, 
pretty early stages, but there's some visual art and stuff that I've seen that's done by robots that definitely qualifies as art. It looks like art. You, you, if you saw it on a wall with a bunch of human art, you wouldn't necessarily know it was the robot one. But I'm not sure that art collectors are going to be rushing out to buy the latest paintings by Pablo Bot or whatever. Um, right, because, because a lot yeah. of what makes an art collector buy a, a painting is the life story of the artist. That's uh, that's pretty well known by the people who sell art. Right, is the, and is the and, connection that you're sort of making through the art with another right. actual human. With the human, right. Uh, that the art is fundamentally a communication medium. It's an abstract communication medium, but you want to feel like there's a human on the other side with whom you're making a connection. Now, again, it's not like there's no way we could have a, a conscious enough AI that could create art that gives you that feeling. It's just that I think there'll still be a scarcity there and demand for uh, human-created art that is known to be human-created. For example, let's think of like a robot, you know, blues musician right. uh, that's got the likeness of a human that's sitting there with an acoustic guitar, you know, belting out lyrics of its sadness. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be a fantastic singer. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly for novelty's sake, I'd really love to see that. But uh, does the f- knowing that it's a robot kind of ruin the whole experience of, I think know, for some people it'll it'll devalue that art and for, probably for enough people that they'll continue to be a market for a human blues singer in a world that has a robot of that sort. Okay, so uh, next on the list of scarcities of human interaction is what I'm calling goodwill. I don't know if this is the best term for this. And again, I think it's helpful to sort of talk about, say, piracy and some of the media that we have today that's super abundant and point to the fact that there are plenty of situations where People could pirate something or could get it for free, and yet they pay for it anyways because they get a feeling of of sort of goodwill and they feel like a better person because they're paying for it because they're supporting the artist. And this is the same reason that people, you know, give money to charity, right? Right, right. Um, it's a, it's like a, um, they want to signal their association with a group that they admire, whether that's you know fans of X artist or people who give to charity or whatever it is. And they get that value out of paying, even though the payment is not, strictly speaking, necessary to get the good. Right. And I would describe this as sort of purchasing, you know, a positive feeling in your brain. I mean, that's the scarce thing that you're purchasing. And so, you know, as long as uh, happiness isn't reproducible in a drug, which is definitely possible... Um, but I mean, I, you know, I think, well, but even if happiness is reproducible in a drug, this is a particular positive feeling. It's not just happiness. Yeah. That you might not be able to fake, you and, know? And it's, it, people may want it for variety's sake. If not, you know, maybe it's not the only kind of happiness they go after, but uh, there are a lot of examples of this in our, in our world today. Um, the well-publicized example I can think of is that Louis CK, uh, stand-up special that did so well sure. where he, you know, he released it for five bucks and kind of like released a thing where he's saying like, yeah, it's five bucks. I know you could pirate it, but it's not that much and don't be a jerk and I'm doing it myself. And uh, that encouraged a lot of people to buy it. And he made a million bucks off of that. Another one is the, um, the humble bundle of indie games where they take a lot of the a certain percentage of the money spent on on the package of games goes to charity right um and i think you i forget if you even maybe I get, think to you choose get to choose charity. where they yeah. go or something or you choose from a list something yeah. like that and it, it gives people a lot of agency it makes them feel good about themselves it also gives them a good deal on a product and those three things together manage to pop combat the piracy and sell, um, I think, significant copies of these indie games that are otherwise being pirated. And so again, taking this into the future, sure, you could just print out uh, the new chair design at home, 
that uh, some chair designer made and you could do it for free. But maybe you want to pay them because you want to, again, supporting the artist. Right, because he's, you know, suggested that if uh, if he sells a certain amount, he'll design an even better chair next year. Or maybe he's going to give some of that money to uh, give chairs to people who don't have assemblers yet or something right. like that. And so you want to feel good about it and you, you participate. Now, uh, the next thing on the list overlaps a little bit with the last one and it's belonging, right? So people like to form associations right. with other people. Again, you know, this is a feeling in your brain that humans have of sort of feeling of belonging. And it's not clear how technology can just sort of automate that away. I mean, people are right. going to want to be parts of groups. Parts of groups. Um, yeah. They may want to purchase a club membership that lets them have access to a space where there's other people that they can hang out with and feel like they belong with. Mm-hmm. Um, or honestly, a club membership could be nothing more than a title. And I think it could already it could have no space associated with it. But just because you can say I'm a member of X club right there, that gives you this feeling of belonging. And, and right. I mean, can, this is a way that college could go, to be honest, because uh, college, many of the things that sure. college does today are uh, starting to be done online for free. When you talk about these online classes and how easily you can transmit uh, education potentially over the internet. Why would you still go to an elite university? Well, because you want to feel like you belong to something, to an institution that has a history. You become an alumni. And you become, yes, and you meet other people and you have that shared experience. And so that feeling of belonging, it can't just be automated away by the computer so easily. Uh, So then number 13 on the list is privacy. And this is an interesting one because obviously if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that our feeling is that privacy is uh, something that's going to uh, become much more scarce in the future as the proliferation of digital uh, technology and sensors throughout the world erodes the de facto privacy that we currently have. What's interesting about that is that it may actually then become more valuable and preserving your privacy in this surveillance-heavy future will be a business goal, I think. Uh, Businesses that can protect you from pervasive surveillance uh, or at least businesses that claim to be able to do that are, I think, going to be very valuable, very profitable vis- businesses. Yeah, and it's it's fun to think of what form this takes. And in fact, I think, you know, we're already seeing this now. I mean, I think, you know, let's say Snapchat. I mean, what is what did Snapchat bring to the table that wasn't already being done by other services? Right. Um, arguably, it brought a privacy feature and not even a very good one. Right, apparently a highly <laughs> flawed one, yeah. right? Uh, but people liked the appearance of that feature so much that it uh, grew really fast, even though uh, in other ways it wasn't maybe the most um, appealing service. But, it, you know, in the future, this gets much more extreme. So, uh, you know, if something like Google Glass catches on, you know, I've already seen... Uh, one website, I think it's called Stop the Cyborgs, that has created these signs that you can download that are essentially like an image of Google Glasses with one of those no smoking red slash uh, circle lines covering it, essentially saying like, you know, glass is not welcome here. So you can imagine, you know, bars and locations that are like surveillance free zones. Sure. um, And that being part of their marketing and part of the appeal. Right. Well, and obviously it's going to get even harder to detect when people are recording uh, because, you know, glass now is super clunky and obvious and it looks like a weird thing on your head. But um, imagine uh, glass type technology embedded in a contact lens. It's not that imagine uh, hard to imagine that. And you could have people walking in and they're recording everything they're seeing and you don't even know. Uh, and there's no external way to tell. So, you know, uh, developing some kind of technology that tries to block their ability to record or block their ability to transmit data or something of that nature, scramble their inputs might allow you to set up a space 
uh, where uh, people can be relatively certain they're not being surveilled and recorded. So when you want to have like a wild night on the town, you may go down the street to the, uh, you know, the blackout bar right. that has some sort of scrambling device or, you know, does some, you know, extensive door check to make sure that nobody's bringing this type of stuff in. And then you know that what happens at the blackout bar stays at the blackout bar. Right. And the last thing on our list, on number 14, is status. And this is a big one. Humans are always measuring themselves in relation to other people. This is um, a fundamental trait of humanity, and it really has the potential to create endless new scarcities. And this interfaces a bit with when we were talking about belonging, but really status can be attached to almost anything. Uh, Anything can be a a status item. It's just a status version of whatever it is. I mean, uh, we have a million examples of this in our current society now, um, you know, a, a, a Honda is a car and an Acura is a Honda plus status. <laughs> and it's just a more expensive, more fancy Honda. Right. Um, but if you drive an Acura around, people will assume you make more money than if you drive a Honda. Um, and this is what economists uh, sometimes call a positional good. Be- sure. and, and that's why you can't get rid of it. Right. Because uh, it's only relative to the position of other goods. Right. And, right. and so, you know, you can always have more of something than other people. Well, I can always just basically charge more for something and cultivate a brand around it, whether it's American Express or Mercedes-Benz or um, Grey Goose Vodka or whatever it is. There's a version of this in almost every kind of good uh, that's just more expensive and in in some intangible way, possibly better, but mostly the value in it is uh, that people know it's expensive. (laughs) Right. So uh, some of these games that you can play online now, these freemium games, they're free to play and then, you know, in-game, maybe you build a city, and if you want to have uh, certain buildings in your city, then all of a sudden you have to pay for those. And this is an example where, like, in a lot of those games, you can also go and look at other people's cities and see, oh, look, they have this cool building right. there, and oh, I really want that, and so I'm going to pay for it. And again, this is stuff that's literally been created out of thin air. Right, it's all just pure imagination, and none of it has to have any intrinsic price at all. It's all just um, being created by or the intrinsic designers. value. You mean it has a price, but it's uh, it doesn't have it doesn't like have any value to somebody in in like in terms of uh, utility. Well, but it doesn't have to have a price either. Like, yeah. I mean, you're right what you're saying, but I, what what I was saying was just that the person who's providing the game, there's no reason why they have to charge for that building. Right. The game will still work if they give the building away for free. And actually, one of the kind of interesting things about how some of these freemium games work, uh, I've noticed this, is that if you happen to be playing them at the right moment, they'll do like, oh, for 24 hours, we're giving away this normally expensive thing for free. And then you can grab it if you happen to be playing at that moment, which will then, of course, create envy in the people you're playing against, because now you've got some power up they don't have. You're doing better than them. They want that thing. That thing has gone back to costing money. So now they want it. And that's all, you know, that's all arbitrary. That's all designed by the game designer. But anyway, the point about this is just that status can be... um, attached to anything. It can even be attached to things that aren't real at all, that don't even exist in a game. Something like an honorary degree. A knighthood. A knighthood, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, um, but anyways, yeah, I mean, and I think this ties into the fact that uh, what a lot of these things have in common is they're very culturally determined. They rely on creating a market for this stuff. And uh, it's stuff that I think a lot of this stuff is pretty fringe in the current economy. And so the question remains whether or not this stuff can essentially replace the current economy in the future. Right, right. If you go back and you think about the 14 things that we just listed, they won't feel to you, I don't think, like they would be able to replace the manufacturing and service economy that we currently have in place. But it's hard to imagine that because, you know, obviously in the past uh, when we had 
a ton of people working in agriculture, it was very hard to believe that uh, as many people could be employed by factories and service jobs as are employed now. But when we freed people up from having to do their own subsistence living, they found out they had lots and lots more needs. I think when we get into this era of digital abundance, we might start running up against some sort of hard limitations on that, but it's hard to tell. So we might find that these things massively expand and that status and attention and privacy and some of these other things become so important that they basically do provide an entire economy uh, of the scale we have now. But I think it's also possible that we'll just have a lot fewer people doing what we would call work these days. We'll have to wait and find out. But in the meantime, I think this is actually, I mean, and I don't think this list is necessarily complete, but I think no, the 14- it's probably not exhaustive. But I think the 14 things we mentioned are, you know, a pretty decent sort of starting playbook if you yourself in your own life are trying to think of, you know, what business should you be in looking right. forward. Right. If you're uh, trying to decide what to do with your life or or if you're thinking about retraining or, or moving careers, I think it's really uh, valuable for you to think about what wherever you're planning to go, what scarcities are you monetizing and are they susceptible to digitization or not? And if you're if you're finding that you're relying heavily on one of these, I think you're in better shape than if you're finding that you're relying heavily on a type of monetized scarce resource that's liable to get digitized soon. Okay, so that wraps up this episode. I think last episode we mentioned that we would be reviewing the second machine age and obviously we didn't do that today, but uh, we're almost done with that book and hopefully we'll be getting to that next week. Yeah, I think you can expect to get that review from us next week and uh, we'll have more interesting things for you uh, coming up on the podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.